welcome everybody to the next episode of the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, your co-host. And I am Tyler Buckingham, your other co-host, and we have a great show for you today, and Peter and I could not be more excited to be back on the American Shoreline Podcast after... Uh, both of us took little vacations, uh, and we have a great show for you today. We're going to tell you a little bit about what we've been up to for the past week. We have uh, news of the weird on the American shoreline, our second segment. Uh, and then we're going to talk about some of the exciting stuff we have coming up here on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. But before we do any of that, let's have a quick word from our sponsor. Uh, Tyler, I'm really happy to. This is the official first day of the sponsorship from Dune Doctors. We have been friends with Dune Doctors for many, many years. Uh, Dune Doctors is a coastal erosion control firm out of uh, Panama City, Florida. They specialize in the planning, construction, and maintaining of native dune systems and protective landscapes. What all that means is if you are in the business of protecting your property with dune systems and native dune plants dune doctors give our friend frederick barisette a call she's the owner of that company they've been in business 17 years they'll take you through the permitting process all the way to construction fantastic company very serious group of people do a great job dune doctors.com dune doctors.com well, Tyler, as you said, we were we were gone for a week, and some of this I, I want to tell the, the listeners out there. It wasn't all vacation. We were also working, and uh, it, it was a great week off. Um, Tyler, where where did you head this past week? Well, I was going to say uh, you might have been taking some work in, but uh, I have to say I was using the week to recreate in one of our nation's uh, most beautiful national parks out in Big Bend country, which is uh, out in West Texas on the uh, Rio Grande River there with the at the border of Mexico uh, and God, it was just so beautiful out there and you know our national parks our national seashores are such great treasures and uh, it was fun to actually be away from the American shoreline a little bit and be I, you know I was out there on the Rio Grande looking at all that sediment and I was like well you're you're in my future. <laughs> there, there's a beach moving down the river. Yeah, there right? is. Hopefully. Truly, it's it's uh, the 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 sediment. The water is just brown with sediment up there, and uh, it's that is North America uh, moving to the American shoreline. Um, and of course, it's carved these magnificent canyons into the into the rock, and uh, it's one of the most diverse geologically diverse places I've ever been. And, and uh, of course, it's got that desert climate. Then you get up into the high country and you get the pinion pine and the ponderosa and these cool oak forests. And the weather was cool. It was cloudy. We did a great 12-mile hike along the south rim. Uh, and what can I say? I can't say anything more highly for Big Bend. And, uh, and of course, I want to uh, congratulate. I was the reason for... Uh, me being out there was uh, for a, a wonderful wedding in the Fort Davis Mountains and spent some time out in the cool, groovy town of Marfa, Texas, yep. uh, kind of an artist haven. So I had a great week, rejuvenated. Uh, congratulations to Maddie B. and Katie on their wedding. And uh feels great to be back, though. Uh, it is a spectacular part of Texas in, the, in our federal public lands in Texas are, are not particularly uh, common, but 
uh, Big Bend National Park and the uh, Padre Island National Seashore, two treasures in Texas, and love getting out there. I kind of went the other direction. You went west, I went east. I went down to Baton Rouge and New Orleans uh, to talk with a couple of, of really interesting people who are working professionals on the American shoreline. Pat Forbes, who's the executive director of the Office of Community Development uh, for the state of Louisiana and runs a program we'll talk more about in the third segment, L.A. Safe, and L.A. not being the city, but L.A. being the state of Louisiana. And a fascinating conversation we'll uh, expand on in the third segment, too, with uh, Doug Balfour, who is an international disaster assistance specialist and a he was a refugee with his wife from Hurricane Michael. Uh, a couple of great conversations in New Orleans. Um, had a chance to stay at the Ace Hotel, great hotel. My son happens to work work there as a bartender, so I was treated very well at the Ace and uh, really had a chance to uh, enjoy the city. Uh, great, it was a great trip. And Sounds it's good awesome. To be, good to be back at work, though. Absolutely. I can actually say that now. It's good to be back at work. Um, the before we jump into the news of the weird on the American shoreline, Tyler, our our longtime sponsor, uh, ASBPA. That's right. Uh, time is running short, but it is not too late to get registered for the ASBPA, the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association National Conference in Galveston, Texas, from October 30th to November 2nd. Uh, this is the best coastal conference perhaps in the world certainly in america and uh, we will be there we cannot wait to uh, be podcasting from there just next week um peter do you have anything to add i mean we're well, just so excited you know asbpa galveston texas october 30th that's eight days from today and uh like i say we will be there uh for the entire conference and looking forward to speaking with a lot of folks and uh thank asbpa uh and that organization for being a sponsor of the american shoreline podcast and the entire network of shows that we're producing now absolutely we uh in fact we we have a new show a new show do you want to introduce it, or should we keep it a secret? Well, which one? We have several new shows. We have several new shows. <laughs> we'll, we'll come back to that in a later segment. I think in segment three, there, for those of you following on the network, you, you're starting to see uh, the new shows originate and be produced, and we're really, really proud of what our hosts are doing. And uh, we, yeah, we're going to talk more about that in the third segment. All righty. Well, let's uh, let's move into news of the weird on the American shoreline. And of course, the American shoreline produces a lot of weird news. Uh, one of the great things about coastal stuff in general is that there is a uh, there's a tendency to spin off in some strange and uh, certainly interesting directions. And today we've uh, we've brought together a series of stories that we feel uh, exemplify uh, recent the week's weirdest and and interesting I news. It, weird and interesting, and and it's now that our podcast hosts are starting to come online, our subject matter experts are going to start to talk about aspects of the American shoreline. We, I think, this is going to be one. Of, this has got to be a regular segment. Absolutely. So, our <clears throat> first story of the weird on the American shoreline is takes place in Pacific Grove, California, which is in uh, Monterey County, and Pacific Grove decided is is to decide in this 
forthcoming election uh, on the future of short-term rentals, which is, of course, a hot topic in every coastal town. Uh, at issue is Measure M. Right, Measure M. And we wanted to, to, to highlight this particular story because it gives us a... Uh, a little bit of a, a, a look into the future. It's a crystal ball story. This is the kind of, uh, of issue that I think we're going to see more and more around the American shoreline. Uh, Pacific Grove, California, one of the early uh, coastal communities to attempt to take on the complex issue of short-term rentals and how it affects the community Measure M is intended, uh, the proponents of this ballot initiative, this citizen ballot initiative, is intended to protect the residential character of Pacific Grove. And Tyler, it's something we've talked about a couple of times, and I think that you've mentioned on the Beach Shack podcast already, and we've talked at length with Dan Martin, uh, is really how short-term rentals can affect the character of uh, communities along the American shoreline. Yeah, and I think, you know, Pacific Grove is, it's important to kind of characterize this. This is not your spring break beach town. No. This is a, uh, this is an area in Monterey County. It's near Carmel. Uh, It is a high dollar uh, affluent community. Um. The home of the Monterey Bay Aquarium in this is, is not in Pacific Grove. It's in Monterey, but that's nearby. Right. In the same county, um, this is perhaps one of the uh, you know preeminent, uh, nice, quote-unquote nice uh, beach towns in California. Mm-hmm. And uh, that being said, it does. there are a number of resorts on the uh, shoreline there, very nice restaurants. Um, it's a, it is a beautiful place to be and spend time. But uh, starting in 2010, uh, the community dipped its toe into allowing short-term rentals, and it has basically been a cat fight ever since. Uh, I think so, The fur has been flying. Well, and I think partly the reason I think uh, Pacific Grove is a good community to look at on the short-term rental issue is because uh, of its, uh, like it's a high-dollar area where this kind of issue is going to draw a lot of attention. Um, And... It's going to be complicated for everybody, and here's why. According to Airbnb, they earned a billion dollars in the third quarter of 2017. The last figures that we have is a massive business that is coming all along the American shoreline. Well, you can imagine. There's Airbnb just right up the road in San Francisco, in the Silicon Valley. With all of those San Francisco, Silicon Valley dwellers looking to get away, mm-hmm. this is a prime market for short-term rentals. And as uh, Peter said earlier, and I've said uh, uh, previously on this podcast and on the Beach Shack, which is uh, coming up soon, uh, episode one coming up soon. This week. This week. The kickoff show. I can't wait. That's right. But... Uh, this type of uh, short-term rental activity does have the capacity to change the fabric of a community. It changes the economic incentives. It changes the way, uh, it changes whether or not homeowners will uh, reside at their house Mm -hmm. or if their house will sit empty. In fact, on this week's episode of The Beach Shack, we will discuss this very subject uh, briefly. So, 
Uh, clearly, there is money to be made in short-term rentals in Pacific Grove, and the community has been grappling with the consequences and right. and how to manage that. And this is all real, uh, come down the pike here with uh, right with Measure M. And we've got right here in Austin, Texas, right. We've got HomeAway, uh, which right. is another. Uh, short-term rental company in addition to Airbnb. And I think HomeAway specializes really in beach rentals, don't they? They do. They're, and, and you know, we should probably, we, we, we need to say off the bat that these companies do great work. Uh, yes. Uh, we ourselves, uh, when we're traveling around the American shoreline to communities to conduct consulting business, uh, often stay yeah. at uh, Airbnbs and HomeAways and it's just a great way to get into the community and, mm-hmm. you know, not not feel like you're staying at a hotel. Right. It's a different type of experience experience. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, by no means it, it, one of the uh, aspects of this very um, issue here with Measure M is that, you know, these these short term rental uh, opportunities provide access opportunities too it's, they sure it, do. it's a way to experience the beach and these coastal communities in a way that you just don't if you're staying at a hotel or a motel right and when we were trying to dig through the measure m uh issues in preparation for the show today I, there is a very complicated issue we're going to talk a little bit about it but fundamentally uh the way i boil it down is this is a market share battle and people often forget that regulatory structures is particularly licensing uh, regulations that give you the pass to operate a business, you know, whether it's a nail salon or a pulp and paper factory, uh, pulp and paper mill in the Pacific Northwest, these licenses and permit systems decide who is at the table economically. And I think what's going on in Measure M right now is a intense conflict, not only on the residential character of the town, but also on who is going to be serving the hospitality and tourism industry along that shoreline. You've got the traditional Chamber of Commerce member folks who run hotels and, you know, facilities that are long established being undermined by the disruptors of the gig economy. This has happened in a number of different economic contexts, but we're talking about, you see it in Uber and Lyft and battles over, uh, the, you know, over transportation right. that w- w- with the taxi guys versus the gig economy right. people. Rideshare. Rideshare. That's what's happening here in Measure M. It's fundamentally what it's at stake in Measure M. Well, and, and what Measure M... Uh, will do is uh, restrict the number of short-term rentals that are allowed in the residential zone of the city, but it doesn't propose any restrictions in the coastal zone nor in the commercial zone. So, right. you know, one of the one of the questions that I have, and I, I we will certainly be keeping an, our our eye on this, is uh, what if, if short-term rentals are to be allowed in an unrestricted basis? within the coastal zone, what sort of impacts will that have within the coastal zone? That is currently not mm-hmm. the law of the land that they have. Uh, and uh, I, I'm curious about this. One of the one of the things I like to keep my eye on is uh, the changing, uh, the changes that economic changes produce in coastal communities, the cultural changes and the economic changes that, that, right. that spiral around together. 
And uh, I'm interested to see if this produces a, a change along that shoreline and the types of businesses we see right. in uh, the ways that it's used. And um, just a very interesting story. Peter, like you said, it's kind of a bellwether. It is a bellwether. And I think uh, what's interesting is when we looked back at Pacific Grove, the town of Pacific Grove, you know, since I think it was uh, 2010 or 2012, I think Correct. they have passed five local ordinances attempting to manage short term rentals in that community. They've gone through a number of phases to try to deal with that. They had density limits they adopted that says you can only have one short term rental within 55 feet of another, right. that kind of thing. They put a cap on the licenses for short-term rentals at 250 in the community. They quickly exceeded that and reached 284. And that resulted in them trying to create a lottery system for who was going to get the right to operate. In other words, who was going to be part of the economic pie. That's why I'm saying this is part of a market share battle, in addition to being a, 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 about the character of the community. But... The town is, is grappling with it because it makes a damn big difference in the community. Uh, according to what our research showed, the city is collecting about $1.4 million a year in transient occupancy taxes, or TOT taxes, which is a key part of the city budget in the smaller coastal communities. This is We see this in North Carolina. We see it in small towns in Florida. We certainly saw it in Charlotte County, yeah. is these businesses that are operating in the gig economy, essentially, are becoming critical foundations of coastal government funding. And and in many cases, this particular revenue stream contributes to not only tourism promotion, but to beach restoration and shoreline management. Yeah. In fact, uh, there is a companion measure uh, to Measure M that seeks to offset any losses due to uh, the res the short-term rental restrictions that Measure M would propose right. uh, by increasing the TOT tax rate. So right. they need that revenue, clearly. And also, you know, this is, as I'm sure all of our listeners are aware, this is a big-time election. And, uh, of course, it's a big-time election uh, at, our, at our state levels and at our uh, legislature Federally, legislator local. federally state level local of course mm -hmm. midterms three mayoral candidates in pacific grove uh are talking about this specific measure right. two of them have endorsed it one of them has not it is a divisive issue but the one thing they all agree on is the importance of that tot money they are right. in lockstep that that needs to remain an important revenue stream for the city. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there was an attempt. This this has gone to, to court. And for those uh, city managers and uh, city council members, county commissioners around the American shoreline, folks, the issue will be coming your way because of the revenues attached to it and because of what it means in the community and how it affects your existing business base. It's a disruptive force. It affects the Holiday Inn and all of the folks that currently operate facilities. And it really presents a, a big barrier or a burden on local government folks who are trying to track this economic sector and attach these revenue streams, whether in this case, it's the transient occupancy tax. It's called the hotel occupancy tax in Texas. It's an accommodation tax in North Carolina. I mean, every state's got this, and yeah. they have a variety of different names. But the, the government folks are really struggling to get a handle on it, and they are here in, 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 
uh, Pacific Grove. Um, one of the things out of that jumped out was this lawsuit from the uh, Monterey County. There was an attempt to block Measure M yeah. uh, from getting on the ballot. And I think the if I have the story right, the, the plaintiffs in the case that wanted to block Measure M were opposed to the restrictions that Measure M applied. And they wanted more of a free hand in the economy. Um, what do you know? Another example of <laughs> private property rights on the American shoreline becoming an issue. Indeed. And uh, the judge, in this case, it was uh, a, a Monterey County judge, Judge Anderson. She she concluded that the rights of the landowners are, and this is a quote from her opinion, the, the rights of the landowners are subordinate to the government's having the right to make decisions for the good of the community. In other words, the measure was going to go forward. It was not improper for the city to seek to restrict and limit uh, these short-term rentals in the community. The judge found that to be fair. I think that's going to be the same decision around the country as local governments try to step into the short-term rental market. Um, it's really just... Uh, a bellwether of where we're headed in this newest um, of the economic forces on the and, American shoreline. And I'm just going to say this right now on the American shoreline podcast. If any of our listeners uh, work with are affiliated with Airbnb Homeway, any of these short term rental companies mm -hmm. reach out to reach out to me. And uh, I want to have you on the beach shack. I, I, I know that so much of the work that y'all do is Fantastic! It truly is a great way to stay on the shoreline, mm -hmm. but there is no way to avoid. There is no way to avoid the fact that uh, local communities are seeking ways to regulate and tax uh, this short-term rental activity, and uh, it's something that that I really look forward to covering and learning more about. Well, it's a good it's a good topic, and 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 the second news of the weird story is just an extension of this first Absolutely. one from St. Augustine, Florida, where the local tax assessor is working very hard to get a handle on short term rentals in St. Augustine, Florida. The thing that jumped out at me was Airbnb had announced that it its business model was so successful. Again, I had a billion dollar profit in the third quarter of 2017. That's an incredible, uh, least successful business. And they've had a 73% growth in Florida alone in 2017. This stuff is not going to go away. And you know that that is largely coastal tourism. In Florida, I mean, I, absolutely. It, it, it's so coupled with that 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 state the state of florida is a beach tourism state there's no way they have beautiful beaches and i mean this is of course we're going to talk later about the hurricane but uh the economic power of uh short-term rentals this you know newish force mm -hmm. is unleashing opportunities that just simply did not exist 20 years ago right and uh, it's putting additional pressures on the American shoreline there in Florida to uh, be pristine and be perfect and be tourism worthy. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Florida has a Florida is tourism worthy. It's a beautiful place. But, of course, we have the issues with red tide and blue green algae and hurricanes. So yeah. uh, this will precipitate another head-on discussion about coastal management. I, I think so. Uh, we're, we're starting to see this small business distributed hospitality industry 
which will have a, as it gets organized and as the financial strength of this industry grows, I think it is going to affect policy. Uh, what we're seeing in St. Augustine, Florida, is the local tax assessor for St. John's County struggling with trying to find out who's renting and whether or not they're paying their uh, accommodation taxes or their uh, hotel occupancy taxes. Uh, they're starting to find third-party providers who are investigating and tracking listings on the internet and trying to figure out who is renting rooms, if not homes, and are they contributing their fair share? So all of that is about not only the economics and the economic power of this, but, but also the governmental implications. Uh, it, it, overall, it can be quite positive, but the complexity of how this industry evolves on the American shore, I think you're quite right. It's eventually going to finish. It's going to, it's going to affect shoreline management policy. Um, you're quite right about the economic power of Florida beaches. James Houston uh, the article in Shorn Beach Magazine in this year's earlier edition, which documents the enormous economic power of Florida beaches, uh, this is just one more facet. Absolutely. You know, well, we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about this, the storms later, but uh, just to kind of tie these two things together, uh, you know, I, I happened to last night watch the florida governor's debate which happened to be aired on on cnn and uh it was it was amazing to hear how frequently coastal issues were discussed yeah um there is no doubt that in florida uh the beaches the health of the beaches the blue green algae issue and managing storm events hurricane events are increasingly i mean if you think about it from a governing perspective think about all of the economic activity that's generated sure there's the tot taxes which is, or or in this case it's the what do they call it in florida peter i think it's the accommodation the taxes. accommodation taxes so you have these tourism taxes that are being generated which are uh mostly local i believe yeah um but then there's there's a whole bunch of other you know when you generate when you start revving up this economy there, it churns in secondary and tertiary ways that that spill into other economic sectors. So if if Airbnb is experiencing a 73% increase in their Florida mm -hmm. activity, yeah. uh, that means that the state of Florida, that the government is has more money to play with, that the overall economy right. is experiencing growth. Yeah. And uh, so it, yeah. and it's obviously connected to the health of the shore. It is a tax rate somewhere between four and six percent in St. John's County here, they've got a four percent uh tax and other communities have up to six percent in the texas coast it's a similar range and it's millions of dollars that are pumped into the local economy and is specifically used in many cases for shoreline management projects mm -hmm. so the success of this industry is important uh, on a, just a number of levels and i think uh i'm looking forward to hearing uh, more about it. I hope you can get some folks from Airbnb or VRBO I, I plan to. I or HomeAway on the beach shack. I've got some good leads. Uh, <laughs> I, I won't share uh, my uh, it, release any names quite yet for guests, but um, I know that uh, many of the listeners out there uh, run vacation rentals and own property and rely on uh short-term renting as a source of revenue uh, for them. So uh, I'm interested in it for a couple ways, uh, and that's something we can look forward to. But Peter, why don't we uh, 
hop fly back onto the West Coast <laughs> and talk about an interesting uh, yeah. Uh, where there's smoke, there's fire, I see. <laughs> well, I think we, we're going to head back to California for the third story, the weird story of the week from uh, the American Shoreline. And this is something I could not have anticipated and had not thought about because what we're seeing emerging in, in this case, we're, we're talking about Santa Barbara County, one of the great uh, coastal counties on the American Shoreline. And the local regulatory efforts regarding cannabis cultivation and how it has become a f- issue with the California Coastal Commission. I mean, who knew that the California Coastal Commission was going to get neck deep in cannabis regulation in America? And I, I you know, so you here know, we the, are. Ba- the background here is that the state of California legalized uh, recreational use of marijuana a couple years ago. Uh, it officially became legal uh, on New Year's of 2018, right, so of this, this year. So uh, in in that period of time, many uh, operations have been using temporary permits, and the state and local entities have been, uh, government entities have been working to bring uh, permanent permitting and right. policies into effect to regulate this brand new industry. Here's another one. that, And, and here's another one, cannabis on the coastline. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, 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 we're not trying to be silly in bringing this up. Uh, this is going to be a major force in the states that have legalized or choose to legalize cannabis. Uh, of course, this week, the entire country of Canada legalized cannabis, recreational cannabis consumption. Uh, Here it was a smashing success. I've I've read that they ran out of supply in about 48 hours. But let's just say that there's a need, there's a demand. And and we all know that that, uh, prior to legalization, the number one cash crop in virtually every state has been marijuana. Marijuana is used heavily. And now that there's a movement, I'm sure... We have all been kind of aware that there's a national movement to uh, change some of the restrictive laws surrounding uh, marijuana use, both recreationally and especially medicinally for goodness, 20 years or so. There's been a movement afoot. And of course, there's scientific evidence to back all this stuff up. But um, let's just talk about the economic potential here. I mean, this is there's there's going to be interest in growing and selling and doing all of this whole economy wants to do, and yep. and the the rules and regulations need to be written. And they and they in California for uh, California coastal counties that have to adopt the ordinances authorizing sale in their counties. It's not the, the state ban allowed. I mean, the state uh, law allowed counties to make their decision on whether they wanted to go forward, but it has to, it finds its way into the local coastal program for the county and what's called the implementation plan. And what they're dealing with is that they're going to have a new agricultural practice that is occurring along the American shoreline. This is a water intensive kind of cultivation, right. um, whether it's in greenhouses or if it's in open air cultivation. Um, look, we, we know that agricultural practices in and coastal environmental health are intimately connected. All we have to do is look at what happened in Florida right. all year. And so the, 
the Santa Barbara County Board of Commissioners is in the process of updating their local coastal program to account for this new agricultural practice of, of cannabis cultivation. The meeting is actually uh, running presently as, as we record this. By the, time, uh, by the time it's published, the meeting will be over. But uh, no, Peter, you're exactly right. And, and uh, talk a little bit more about what you were saying earlier. I thought that was really interesting about the connection between this and what's going on in Florida. Well, I, I think what we're looking at and, and what we're seeing in Florida... And uh, I know there's different points of view on what is contributing to this massive red tide and blue-green algal bloom that's occurred all along the Gulf Coast of Florida this year and into the Atlantic side uh, more recently, causing millions of fish deaths, uh, marine mammal deaths, the whale shark. We had a good discussion with Robert Jones about this during his interview and introduction of the Catch Curve podcast. Uh, which we're going to talk a little bit about in segment three, but the 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 notion is that non-point source runoff pollution of agricultural fertilizers and other chemicals are helping to boost red tide and blue blue green algae in in the nearshore waters along the Florida shoreline. Uh, it's a hot topic, as you said, in the state of Florida governor's race. It was a specific and rather heated discussion between the candidates on how best to handle that problem. And this is another case when we talk about cannabis in California is here is another emerging economic force that's going to shape certain parts of the American shoreline. I don't doubt that that there will be significant uh, issues to attend to as cannabis cultivation expands around the uh, around the, the country um, and it has coastal implications because gee, i can already tell you that that up in northern california the discussion of water quality impacts from cannabis production are fairly significant and i don't think uh, local communities should ignore the connection between this emerging industry and coastal environmental health absolutely <clears throat> i mean there's no question that uh as the movement toward legalization expands, so too will the regulatory framework. And on the American shoreline where, uh, let's face it, uh, there has, especially in California, I mean, you don't need to be, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, There's grateful. a connection, sort of cultural. <laughs> there is, I mean, Isn't there kind of a cult? I, we I don't want to. We don't want to say anything about the surfer community, but, no. but there is sort of a, <laughs> a connection between. Frankly, it's broader than that. I mean, well, absolutely. I mean, the that. the reality is is that uh, pot on the California coast has uh, been a fixture for uh, longer than I have been there, and it was there when I was growing up and living there, and it still is there now, and was there, you mm-hmm. know, going back, as, I don't know how long, but a very long time, right, and. Uh, you know, I certainly think that it's positive that we are uh, looking at this from a regulatory perspective Got to. And, and trying to, you know, like you said, the, the consequences of not factoring in uh, the runoff and how the types of fertilizers and yeah. where like, that's we're just talking about the agricultural component. You know, right. there's this whole other component that has to do with distribution and that all needs to be regulated too. And anybody that's ever been to a beach town that has a you know two thousand bars in it and is just spring breaked out, and you know th- that's a type of town. And uh, 
marijuana uh, dispensaries and that t- whole business is going to be moving into the American shoreline and we're going to be keeping our eyes on it. It's a, right. it's a new uh, business that is coming out of the shadows and it's going to be interesting. Uh, I, you know, it, it, it's the same theme basically that we're talking about with short-term rental industry these new emerging economic forces. And I think the American shoreline has always been shaped by two major forces. One is economics, particularly in, say, in real estate or speculation or any of that kind of stuff that has driven how the American shoreline is used, and storms, which brings us to our next news of the weird. And this one is more news of of great concern, uh, Hurricane Willa. Hurricane Willa. Uh, at this moment, a Category 5 storm moving toward the Baja Peninsula of Mexico. It's in the Pacific Ocean. Um, this storm uh, currently has 160 mile per hour winds, Peter. 925 millibars pressure, which is a very low, obviously, barometric pressure for uh a hurricane. This is a Cat 5 storm in late October. Uh, you know, we're just seeing, they, they're starting to say that the Pacific hurricane season this year has been the most extraordinary historically. Uh, hurricane Willa is going to add to that storyline. Uh, for those of us in Austin, we're in central Texas. We have been through 10 days of intense rain, uh, historic flood levels in the Highland Lake system all over Central Texas. More rain coming this week. And we expect Willow's bands to arrive in in Austin, Texas, and Central Texas this week. And it's these storms are tremendously powerful. Obviously, we all know that. Um, and they will shape how we use the shoreline as if the frequency and the intensity does in fact prove to increase, as some believe, uh, I think we're going to start to see new, new ways uh, that we're going to occupy and use the American shoreline. It's going to get very expensive to respond uh, to these events of this magnitude. Well, a couple things that that come to mind the, for me. The first is, you know, obviously uh, this this storm, and I, I'm going to issue a quick correction. Uh, it's it looks like it's set to. Uh, make landfall uh, with the mainland of Mexico uh, south of the Baja Peninsula um, and then cross over uh, central Mexico into uh, Texas. Now, the Rio Grande Valley, the, the Rio Grande Valley, somewhere late this week, uh, mid this week, mid this week. Now, I was just out there uh, in the Big Bend area on the Rio Grande River, and, and we actually have have quite a bit of experience working down uh in South Texas, sure and did. one of the one of the fascinating uh, aspects of uh, the Texas shoreline is the beautiful barrier islands with massive sand dunes. Well, that's all sediment that major that that millions of years and and storm events like this one, millions of years of storms and rain erode the uh, continent of North America. Texas, yeah, all the way along, and push that sediment out to uh, sea, out to the Gulf, and of course we have modified 
that river significantly. Yes, uh, massively. We, we have dammed Falcon, it. Falcon Reservoir. Massive reservoir. Yeah. We've actually gone and seen it. I mean, it's yeah. it's something else right on the border. Um, and, of course, we, that has restricted the sediment that wants to go out to that island. Um, it restricts it from getting there. And, of course, I'm sure it fills that reservoir up and they have to manage that. At but, some point, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I just think that it's important for us to realize that these weather events, even though this is not directly impacting the American shoreline, it will produce water and the shoreline are connected. When water falls inland, it flows to the, to the sea and it carries with it agricultural runoff in the case of uh, mm-hmm. blue-green algae and, and situations like that. It also carries with it uh, the, the life force of the beach, the, the sand and sediment that we need right. to renourish our, our shores naturally. Yeah, and as we talk about Hurricane Willa, uh, mm. it's, it's very easy to forget that five weeks ago, Hurricane Florence came ashore as a Category 2 storm at the point of impact. It had reached Category 4 status as it came across the Atlantic, but Hurricane Florence is, it seems like a distant memory. Uh, it made landfall September 14th. That's uh, crazy. And the impacts of that storm, obviously the inland flooding was the massive uh, impact uh, of Hurricane Florence. There was uh, impact to the, Amer- uh, to the shoreline in North Carolina and Topsail Beach and around to Oak Island and up and down the eastern seaboard and loss of beach uh, that are they're just starting to, to evaluate the level of dune loss and the, and the recovery cost. But it was the inland flooding. And I, I, I that devastated and and submerged many rural communities it it resulted in the release of coal fly ash from several uh, duke energy uh, coal energy facilities Um, there's a massive amount of of fly ash that is collected and stored in in open pits that were released into the cape fear river for example and then the flooding in the rural communities that affected con, uh, confi- uh, uh, confined animal feeding operations, the pig farms and, the, and things, which are a huge industry and a big business in North Carolina, and released a lot of nutrients into the water. I mean, we're not talking about it. The point I'm making is, as we turn our attention to Willa, uh, even though it's not a U.S. impact, it's certainly going to get everybody's attention about what's happening in storm systems in the world and what are we going to be looking forward to next season. Yeah. But it's, we, we move past these events so quickly now, Mm -hmm. uh, the rural communities in the Carolinas and up the Eastern seaboard that were affected by Florence are in the early stages of recovery is my understanding. Public school systems in some communities are, have not been reopened and we forget about it. And I think we forget too quickly. Yeah, I mean, uh, September 14th, Florence, October 10th, Michael, that was 12 days ago. And now we have another one making landfall, uh, mm-hmm. like you said, in Mexico. But um, these these storms uh, create, have the potential, and in, and in the case of uh, certainly Florence and Michael, devastation, just true, absolute devastation. And... Uh, it's interesting because you know Peter, you were you were mentioned to me earlier when you were in uh, New Orleans. You had a, a an interesting run in in the at the hotel lobby, and you you uh, you met a guy who uh, who does disaster relief professionally, and he was a refugee from Michael. 
he was he a, and his wife had, had and their friends and their friends had escaped the florida panhandle gone to new orleans for the hurricane and this guy's a professional uh disaster yeah recovery specialist is res- his organization uh, and w- this is a really a segment three topic guys i'm going to save some of that but yeah let's save it but hurricane michael uh obviously mexico beach is the poster uh child of that hurricane the devastation in that community it looks like more than 50 percent of the structures on uh the beach were destroyed completely uh they we don't quite i think know the death toll in that town but um it was a major hit and here we are a, a mere 12 days after hurricane michael's impact and I would dare say, unless you live in the panhandle of Florida, you're probably not thinking much about Hurricane Michael now. And again, I, not this is just one of the characteristics of modern America, is we move through things very, very quickly. And unfortunately, the impacts of these events do not end very quickly. And right. the concentration and the focus required to really deal with the implications of of these events on the American shoreline is, you know, we've, we're continuing to get better, but obviously they make a lasting impact and require a long lasting solution. That's right. I think that that's, that's the, the big takeaway for me, Peter, is that in order to do a better job at preparing for future storms and managing the shoreline, generally a place where the water and the land interface and where storms will happen we have to take a longer view and uh in the 24-hour news landscape that we are all too well familiar with right uh with coastal news today but you know it these these things just become stories it becomes a a, you know a reporter standing in the wind Mm -hmm. for a few days and then it goes away and i'll tell you for the people who are not in school right now whose kids are not in school right now right and whose house is is gutted because of the severe water damage it hasn't gone away not at all and for the fishermen uh whose fisheries will be impacted for years it doesn't go away quickly and uh we're gonna keep our eye on it i'll tell you that much well i do i think it's important uh we're not trying to be the weather channel and we're not trying to deal with really the days of impact. I think I'm interested in how they shape government policy, right. government finance. And for the coastal practitioners out there, the people who do this work for a living, whether you're in the consulting side of things or whether you're a, a, a port director or you're a local government official or a business owner, people who are in the business understand and track how the government responds to storms. We're all familiar with FEMA, but you know Congress just passed a $17 billion supplemental appropriation uh, for h- hurricane impact that is going to put a lot of project money on the coast, which is a good thing. Uh, but government spending priorities shift in what, what Derek Brockbank is at ASBPA has been noticing, and I'm looking forward to talking to him when we get to the conference in eight days, is that we're starting to see more federal expenditures and more federal money coming in the form of disaster recovery funds as opposed to 
sort of pre-planning, mitigation, or other more organized spending. And, you know, it's just important to understand it because the thing that struck me about Hurricane Harvey that hit the city of Houston last year, it is when they tabulated up the bill, it was a $225 billion event. I mean, now when I see hurricanes spinning out in the Gulf of Mexico or I see them out on the Atlantic seaboard, I'm thinking that's $5 billion right there. That yeah. is what's coming our way. And I hate to reduce this to money. And I, and I believe me, we do not uh, ignore or overlook community impacts and the loss of life and the impact on people. But when you see these events coming our way, I start thinking about the policy and the financial implications immediately. And, and you know, I, it's hard to ignore that. It's, it's massive, and it makes a big difference on what we do on the American shoreline. Absolutely. Well, <laughs> we're going to jump into our third segment. But before we do that, I want to, uh, to welcome our next great sponsor to the American Shoreline Podcast Network. And Tyler, we, we broadcast this show from Austin, Texas, uh, known as the live music capital of the world deep in the heart deep in the heart of texas and uh there's a whole bunch of folks down here who like two-step and country swing there's a couple of great places to go you know the broken spoke is an iconic country and western bar where if you want to put on your cowboy boots and get down to the broken spoke and don't forget your stetson don't forget your stetson and, and swing dance to a great country band here in austin texas Go to the Broken Spoke, but you can't show up in your loafers. That's the problem with this particular. You've got to have a great pair of cowboy boots. And and I just want to put a shout out here to uh, the Brazos Trading Company, the best place in Austin, Texas, to get a great pair of broken in, handmade, super cool cowboy boots. Vintage boots. Go down and see my dear friend Charles Price at the Brazos Trading Company, 6539 North Lamar Boulevard. Look him up. He's fantastic. You know, I uh, Austin is a uh, quite a popular wedding uh, destination, Peter. I've had a number of friends pass through town uh, to stay with me for a wedding that they're attending. And, of course, if you're going to a wedding in Texas... Uh, the appropriate footwear is a pair of boots. Don't buy new ones. Go to the Brazos Trading Company. Charles will fix you up with a pair of vintage <laughs> handmade Texas boots that will last forever. Maybe they were made in the 70s in San Antonio. Yep. But uh, <clears throat> they still have a lot of life in them. They've got a story to tell. Charles knows all the history. Uh, it's just... It, Great to have him on board as a sponsor for the uh, yeah, American Shoreline Podcast Network. And look, for I know a lot of you will not get to Austin, Texas, but some of you will. And <clears throat> some of you who come into town to go to the University of Texas football game, I was talking to Tyler about this earlier, and Max, our sound engineer as well. There is a uniform for the University of Texas football game, and the, and the, and the college girls are all wearing uh, shorts or a skirt and a pair of cowboy boots. And and if you if you come to the University of Texas and you moved here from some other part of the country, you got to get ready to go to the UT game, and you got to go down to the Brazos Trading Company and see Charles because he'll set you up, and you won't look like a newbie because he's got the best boots, and he'll also tell you this, as you said, the story who made them who they were. There's some, been some great boot makers in Texas history. Not a lot of them left, but there are some. Brazos Trading Company. Tell them Peter and Tyler sent you. He'll give you a discount. At Brazos Trading Company on North Lamar Boulevard. Thanks a lot to Charles and the Brazos Trading Company for joining on 
uh, the American Shoreline Podcast as a sponsor. Well, that brings us, Peter, to our third and final segment for the show. Uh, We just wanted to take a few minutes and kind of breeze through some of the exciting content we have coming up. Uh, Of course, we've got the uh, conference next week. We're going to be doing a bunch of podcasting there. But uh, for this segment, we wanted to talk about some of our other segments that we've, or some of our other shows that we have prepared uh, for ASPN. Right. I think, you know, people who've been following the network so far have heard a lot from Tyler and I on the American Shoreline podcast this show. Um, But it is a network. And as everyone knows, we're in the process of building that network. And I'm really, I'm really excited about the shows that are, that are starting to emerge on the network. And Tyler, your show, The Beach Chat, kicks off this Wednesday, the inaugural show. I'm looking forward to The Beach Cat, Beach Shack Podcast. Me too. Uh, The Beach Shack Podcast uh, for episode one, my inaugural episode. uh, I am so stoked to have on Don Scanlon. Uh, He and his family have uh, owned a beach house in the Solomar uh, colony of Ventura County, California, since the night, since the early 1930s. And uh, I sat down with Don for a free wheeling conversation about uh, his memories there, how the shoreline has changed, mm-hmm. um, what the shoreline was before development, what it looks like today. Um, his thoughts on short-term renting, uh, how the community there in Solomar uh, manages that, uh, just a whole bunch of topics. And it's, it's really interesting. I'm, I'm really thinking here for my audience about uh, coastal property owners and, yeah. and, and trying to uh, get at some of the questions that might be in your mind as, a, as somebody who's either interested in getting into coastal property ownership or someone who's already in the game uh, and looking for... Uh, tips uh, for how to manage your place, how to do better at short-term renting, and also just celebrating celebrating beach properties. I mean, you beach bet. houses are awesome. They're great places to spend time. It's a great way to uh, feel, you know, to, the great thing about staying at a beach house is that time disappears and you stop looking at your watch and you stop you start paying attention to the tides phones phones tend to get set down a little bit more often when absolutely you're on the American so Shoreline. I, I i think it's going to be a really great show because through the lens of coastal property this is what excites me about this particular show is looking at the american shoreline through the lens of property ownership reveals as you said both the transition of the shoreline which is something we want to explain and talk about how coastal communities around the American shoreline have evolved over time. The Ventura County shoreline evolution is really a fascinating story from an oil and gas production county to a tourism-based economy between 1930 and 19, maybe the 80s, right. in 50 years. Um, but it's the, it's the lens of property ownership that reveals both transitions it also reveals policy questions that are emerging. The short-term rental one we talk a lot about because it's such a powerful force. But I think it's going to be a great show. And what's really cool about that show is you're going to get a chance to talk to people about their beach houses. And people love their beach houses. I really, you know, one of the things I think is one of the funniest things is 
about the American shoreline is everybody names their beach house. There's plenty. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there should be a contest oh, on the best beach house name. It's the Sandy Flea. It's the Sandy this. It's the Dune this. It's, I mean, they're all named. They've got plaques. They're, they're, people connect. And, but being able to talk about their houses and about the transition of the community and also introduce us to really great beach towns around America, I think it's going to be a fantastic show. Yeah, it's like baseball. There's no clock on the beach. There's <laughs> no clock on the beach. Uh, the second show, which uh, has already, uh, the first episode is already on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, is the Sea Change Podcast with Jenna Valente. Man, she is going to bring a perspective to the network I absolutely think we must have, and that is about the changing face of coastal advocacy. Jenna is talking not only about what, nonprofit organizations and advocacy organizations do along the American shoreline, how they fit into the conversation, how we benefit from the voice of coastal advocates. She's also talking about the emergence and the changes in the coastal advocacy community. She is super. And uh, her first episode, Tyler, uh, Tim Dillingham, I think, was her guest. Yes. So Tim uh, is the executive director of the American Literalist Society. Uh, he is a lifelong advocate for the American shoreline. And uh, God, she did just a great job with that show. And I mean, this is the coolest thing about creating this network, Peter, is that we are getting to uh, put a microphone in front of all of these really interesting voices that mm-hmm. that you know I, I would have never known who Tim was and now I know who he is and what what a great advocate he is and what lit the fire under him and man we you realize how much you have in common you know one coastal lover to another um and and her second episode uh, promises to be fantastic as well Yep, I think the the episode we're working on the edits of that episode will be out soon. She sits down with the for the with the women who formed an organization called Her Chesapeake, which is a a really fascinating, I think, organization that they've created, looking at the role of women and and people and communities of color on in the advocacy universe along the American shoreline. This is an eye opener for me. There is a change going on in terms of the leadership of organizations around the country. Of course, it's generational. And these the new leaders in the American uh, shoreline advocacy community are really starting to to uh, take these organizations through tra- transformations. And Jenna sits down with the president, I think, the vice president and uh, another board member from her Chesapeake. It's really a fascinating discussion. And we can't wait to get that up on the network and bring it to y'all. All right, and that uh, let's talk just briefly about our good friend Rob <laughs> Damn Nixon down Rob. there, down there in South Texas. Uh, he is the host of the Next Swell podcast, uh, and uh, his first episode has also already been released. And we actually were just speaking about, about uh, to him about episode two. Yeah, but episode one uh, he had on Angela Howe and Sarah Damron of the Surfrider Foundation to deep dive into COSLA versus the California Coastal Commission. We did an emergency Supreme yeah. Court edition on this show. Yeah. And then Rob took the baton and ran with it and 
did the deep dive and it is super interesting. Well, I think, you know, Rob's show, the next well podcast is going to focus on coastal access a lot and the interface between private property ownership and public access and use of the shoreline. It's a huge topic all over the American shoreline. It is a big topic in the Florida governor's race right now. It's a big deal on the Texas coast. Um, And what the courts are doing and what states are attempting to do on public access is the subject matter of Rob Nixon's show, the next Well podcast. Coastal versus the California Coastal Commission is the latest in a long series of U.S. Supreme Court decisions on public access. Uh, So his first episode was really great. And he sat down with uh, the attorneys, uh, one of the attorneys and and organizational leaders. If you read an article in the New York Times or the L.A. Times about this case, Angela Howe and Sarah Damron were quoted in that article. Oh, were they? These are these are he went straight to the source and delivered for the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Just some awesome content. So uh, that's listen to that show. It's, it's already show. up, and and his second episode is in the works. Wow! Uh, another great guest, Peter. Man, I'm when Rob called me and said I've got a guest for my second show. Is what do you think? Uh, I was like I said, absolutely. Rob is going to sit down with Jerry Patterson, and for those of you not from Texas, Jerry Patterson was the statewide elected land commissioner of Texas, and in Texas. This person, the land commissioner, has jurisdiction and responsibility for all state-owned land, including in the great state of Texas, the submerged lands of Texas out to three uh, marine leagues or about nine miles. In other words, it is a major coastal land management agency. It's the agency that handles the coastal management plan. And uh, Jerry Patterson, a conservative Republican, great land commissioner, I think. And uh, the, the office is currently held by George P. Bush, who is Jeb Bush's son, is the land commissioner right now in Texas. But a chance for Rob to sit down with Jerry Patterson. And Jerry Patterson went through the gauntlet of coastal issues when he was land commissioner, including for those of us in Texas and for those beach advocates around the country are probably familiar with Severance versus Patterson. This was a Texas Supreme Court case that was uh, really, Severance was represented by the Pacific Legal Foundation, one of the most uh, assertive, aggressive, private property we, right We now. also have to have them on. I, well, mean, I, I would important. like to have them on. They're really an important voice, and their focus is on private property protection and And they are one side, a very important side, of the public advocacy discussions that are going on around the United States. The Pacific Legal Foundation operates nationally. And they were the lawyers or one of the organizations that helped support Severance in his his case against Jerry Patterson when he was land commissioner, dealing with the the rolling easement under the Texas Open Beaches Act. And this decision has major implications for public access in Texas. Uh, it was Texas Supreme Court case. Uh, the, the Pacific Legal Foundation uh, prevailed. And what it meant is that public access is less uh, certain in, in the future in Texas. I think the implications of the case, even though it was in 2012, are still being sorted out. And uh, so I, I think Rob's second episode with Jerry Patterson is going to be one of the highlights. I, it's going to be hard to top. Jerry Patterson is an outstanding spokesman for the coast as a conservative Republican and as a guy who believes in private property rights. So mm-hmm. I just think he's a, it's going to be a, 
man, I can't great, wait. To, I can't wait to hear show. it. Can't wait to hear it. It's going to be great. All right. So moving along now, yeah. we have some exciting news. Uh, those of you who have been listening know that uh, Peter Ravella's show uh, had gone unnamed for <laughs> some number of weeks, but we are excited to announce we have a name. Peter, announce your show. Well, I, you know, it did. And I, Tyler, thank you for your help. And try. We went through a variety of different names for this show, and I don't know why it was so hard to figure out, but it's the Local Control Podcast. And uh, the purpose of this particular show is to focus on the challenges that local governments and local elected officials uh, face on the American shoreline, and that is cities and counties and levy districts. In other words, the, the, the name we toyed around with was the Sandy Gavel, and, uh, <laughs> because what I'm trying to talk about are the people with the gavel. In other words, these are public decision makers who face a lot of pressure to reconcile the interest of the of the communities that they represent along the American shoreline. Uh, I had, uh, I, I took that trip down to New Orleans specifically to meet in my first episode and interview Pat Forbes, who is the executive director of the Office of Community Development in Louisiana. And he is also the program leader for an, uh, 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 for LA Safe, Louisiana Safe. And it seems odd, I, I, I know, to start the Local Control podcast by interviewing a state official, but he, what Pat is doing is he has $100 million from housing and urban development for coastal resiliency. We're starting to see something new here, and it happens to come out of these storms. It was a Katrina and Hurricane Isaac funding initiative for coastal resiliency, not to build seawalls and fix beaches and fix dunes or replant wetlands or any of that but to look at the communities at the local level. And we're starting to see this new federal and state spending initiative on projects for coastal resiliency. And uh, the big issue that they're facing and that Pat and I talk about is the relocation of a community in the Mississippi Delta called the, uh, the, the Isle de Jean Charles. It, it, it's a small town. It was, it was, established in the mid, I think in the 1830s, hmm. when the Trail of Tears at, was happening under President Andrew Jackson, and they were moving Native American communities out of the Southeast to Oklahoma, there were a group of Native Americans who escaped into the Delta and established this town and have lived there ever since. The town is melting away from erosion. It's down to 2% of its size and the state of Louisiana is going to try to save the culture and the community of this, of these people by relocating the town. It's a $42 million budget item. And again, is this the canary that the coal mine? Is this the future of the American shoreline? Is this what we're going to face in terms of the relocation of coastal communities? And can we do that? Can we afford it? Can we do it? So Pat was uh, it was a great discussion. That sounds really. so good, Peter. It was, it, and there's more to it, but Pat the Pat interview will be out soon. And Pat Forbes, I really thank him for the time. He's a busy guy. Let me tell you, he was it was hard to get him, and I was really happy to talk with him. Um, the second episode that we've already put in the can is is a really fascinating discussion with Doug Balfour, the executive director of Geneva Global, which is the sixth largest international disaster assistance recovery nonprofit in the UK. 
Uh, Doug is the author of a, of a book called Doing Good Great, an insider's guide to getting the most out of your philanthropic journey. Doug, Doug and his wife, I sat down with his wife. They've worked all over the world in Africa, in India, in Bangladesh, in Sri Lanka, in Liberia, in the Kalahari. They, these are folks who've gotten their hands dirty in disaster recovery in the, around the world. And Doug and I ha- and, and his wife and their good friends from England, all of whom escaped Hurricane Michael and came to New Orleans. It was just happenstance that I, I got to speak with them. Uh, but we talk about how disaster recovery is handled in America versus internationally and what's the differences in what works internationally that is difficult to apply in the U.S. and vice versa. Um, it's another community-based resiliency discussion. F- fits very well with the discussion I had with Pat Forbes. So uh, Doug Balfour and his wife Sarah uh, and their friends who all joined us. Uh, Doug and his wife had moved to the American shoreline four months before Michael. Incredible. Uh, they tell the story of walking down the beach on Monday before Hurricane Michael hit having no idea that there had been a mandatory evacuation it was a beautiful day they are not familiar with hurricanes and somebody said do you know we have to leave and they felt that faced that crisis of uh that many americans on the on the, on the shoreline experience uh of having to run away from a major storm um it's a great discussion and very insightful i think um look forward to that story yeah it's gonna gonna be good and then of course Robert Jones is coming up. Tyler. Robert My Evans gosh. Jones, the Catch Curve Pod. Uh, Robert just ran off with a microphone to the Gulf Fisheries Management Council meeting uh, in Mobile, Alabama, yep. and uh, we don't exactly know what treasures he's going to bring back, but I know he's going to have some interesting content yeah. for us all. He is Robert, uh, and if you've listened to the interview, if you haven't haven't met robert jones tyler a couple of episodes back on the american shoreline podcast show listen to robert jones in the discussion of the catch curd podcast this is a show dedicated to federal fisheries policy but also the community all of our shows have this community economic angle um what are fishing communities on the american coast how are they changing how do we manage and regulate that industry which is massive that's robert show that's robert show and uh he looks to be putting out his first episode here soon. Uh, can't wait for it. It'll be great. It's going to be good. I mean, the Gulf Fisheries Management Council, and we talked about about this with Robert. This is the Manganson Stevenson uh, right. created entity. There are nine fisheries management councils around the American shoreline. This is the Gulf Fisheries Management Council. They've set the policy on snapper and recreational commercial fishing, headboats, the whole industry is really managed in terms of fish populations through the Gulf Fisheries Management Council. Robert's going to spend the entire week in Mobile. Uh, he plays a role in that system because he is the head of the Gulf Fisheries uh, Office for the Environmental Defense Fund, and right. uh, he's a smart guy. I just think Robert's insights into this this very cryptic universe yeah. that I've never quite Hugely cracked. important realm, though. I mean... yeah. Uh, I won't go into it now. We did a whole show on it with him, but yeah. I'll tell you, uh, if you haven't already listened to that episode with Robert Jones, uh, it's it's great. 
Yep. And when we get that show up, we'll let you know. You'll get it in the email blasts. But Tyler, uh, you know, we covered a lot of ground and I, I, I really, it's welcome back. I'm glad we're back. <laughs> Boy, it feels good to be back home. <laughs> we have a lot to do. <laughs> uh, Coastal News Yeah, we today. have some announcements, huh? Well, I think Coastal News Today, it, which is the news aggregation service for the American Shoreline, uh, I believe we are on pace to release that website this week. Yep. Uh, you can subscribe at coastalnewstoday.com. Uh, it's been a lot of work to build yep. this website. Tyler has spearheaded this effort. Uh, it's just having not built a website of this <laughs> complexity in my life yeah. i can just tell all of the folks out there well this is this is we're, we're, it's a test we're it's a test <laughs> first of all this is uh we we've been working on the website it's a you know it's a we, we cover a lot of news this is a this is a complicated uh news service and uh unlike the new york times which has a full-time web department uh we don't so um, we've been we, working on it. And we I are think the full time. We are. We're it. <laughs> we're the full time. But I'll tell you what, it's coming together really nicely, and um, we're going to continue to improve it. Uh, it, you know, it's it's a, it's going to be a work in progress, and that's totally fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, companion with that daily new with the new service is this email that we will be putting out daily mm-hmm. um and that's what you can subscribe to uh, at coastalnewstoday.com there's a splash page up right now and you should be able to subscribe to that uh which will be launching shortly yeah um the final thing i would say is uh if you have not done so already please subscribe to the american shoreline podcast network and rate it uh rate it and recommend it to your friends we are uh, it would be just a tremendous help for us to uh, get our ratings up uh, we've got a fantastic I think we're at four and a half stars right now which is great but uh, would love to get some more mm-hmm. numbers there and, and boost our metrics so uh, subscribe to the uh, daily news uh, email at coastalnewstoday.com and subscribe to the American Shoreline Podcast Network wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. If if it gives you an option to rate, I know that uh, Apple does, for example, give us a, a rating and uh, give us a little review. And share it. And I, share it, absolutely. For all the early adopters out there who've kind of jumped into the American Shoreline Podcast Network as we form the network and bring the shows online and get the website going, I want to say we're all in spring training here at Coastal News Today and ASPN. I think it's really what's happening. We're learning by doing. We're building uh, this information service for our listeners uh, we've re- appreciated all of the feedback we've gotten. Believe me, there's folks calling and letting us know what they like and don't like. We need that. We, we are shaping this right now. It's a great time for you to reach out to us. Uh, you can reach us on coastalnewstoday.com. You can, I think our email addresses are available, or at least there's a contact portal. Is there? We Can, can people get us? Yes, I, I believe they can, but, um, and I'll be sure to put it up. I'll, I'll be sure our email addresses are up there. Um, but, uh, Yes. Uh, Tyler at parkcoastal.com. Peter at parkcoastal.com yes, that's, can get us. That's P-A-R-C-C-O-A-S-T-A-R, Park Coastal. Uh, yeah, let us know and, 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 and join in. We, the network, we can't talk about all of the shows that we are developing right now because some of this is still formative, but oh my gosh, there's some good stuff coming. Yep. And it, I think you're going to get 
something that you can't get anywhere else, and that is the spectrum of views that are going to be part of ASPN from the environmental advocacy and coastal advocacy to developers and ports and waterways and fisheries and engineering. Oh, this week, we're going to get to finally interview Michael Poff, the president of Coastal Engineering Consultants, whose podcast, uh, the podcast for building better beaches, uh, that's going to come up at least on uh, be recorded this week, and I can't wait to get the Michael Poff interview out for our listeners. It's going to be a great job. Yeah, we're going to be adding that engineering uh, science component, which uh, we are really excited about. we got to have it. And uh, anyway, um, thank you guys for being part of ASPN and the American Shoreline Podcast, our flagship show. And uh, as the network continues to develop, I think we'll be talking... Uh, talking more about what our hosts are doing and uh and i think we got to keep news of the weird i I think coastal (laughs) news of the weird has got to be a thing i really like it absolutely yeah anyway and as always we want to thank max miller our sound engineer he does a great job in rescuing all of the shows that we have produced (laughs) as we've learned to use this equipment he looks at us like did you switch did you put the switch up like what was there a switch there that i needed to max (laughs) is very patient and does a good job and thank you max as always and tyler thank you good to have you back and uh adios everybody adios everybody